Well, good evening, everyone. As Sandy said, my name's Chris. I'm one of the members here at King's. And I don't know about you, but I've been really loving our, uh, our preaching series that we've been working through at these evening meetings, asking what would Jesus say about any given topic? And tonight we are asking, what would Jesus say about self-righteousness? An alternative title could be Abandon Your Self-Improvement Program. I want to suggest that each of us is naturally inclined towards self-righteousness. Our society runs on the principle that you must earn your way through life. To be accepted, you must behave a certain way or meet a certain standard, and you get what you deserve. We take this principle for granted every day, and it's not always a bad thing, to be fair. Uh, It would be strange if employers um, gave the job to the worst interview candidate, or if universities just handed out first-class degrees to students who didn't even bother turning up for the exams, although I'm sure uh, the students would probably disagree with that. So our education, our workplaces, even our legal system works on the simple basis that what you do, your performance, as it were, matters most. And I don't know, you might feel that even in some of your closest relationships, you need to constantly prove yourself um, worthy, worthy of love and respect by what you do or what you achieve. I hope you don't feel this way. But many of us can, so deeply ingrained is the notion that approval only comes as a result of achievement. When we apply this way of thinking to how we relate to God, however, we run into major problems. We're told by our culture that you can achieve anything if you put your mind to it. So we think that if we just work hard enough and do the right things, that we can prove ourselves to God and earn his acceptance. The problem is that no matter how hard you try, you are not perfect. And God is. In Mark chapter 18, Jesus tells us that no one is good except God alone. And we don't have to look very far in our own lives for examples where we've fallen short of perfection, where you've slipped into being selfish, prideful, or impatient, arrogant, lazy, the list goes on. All those things that we see within us that the Bible calls sin. So righteousness, or being made right with God, isn't something that we can achieve on our own. But God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to achieve it for you. You are conditioned by society to believe that you get what you deserve, but righteousness is a gift for the undeserving. Jesus knew how prone we are to try and earn God's favor. And so he had a lot to say about self-righteousness. We're going to home in on a particular story he told about it, recorded in Luke's account of Jesus' life. So feel free to follow along if you've got a Bible with you, or um, I'm sure it'll come up on the screen behind me. This is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. 
God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus introduces us to two very different characters, and he uses one of these characters to warn you about self-righteousness, and he uses the other to show you that no one is beyond the saving grace of God. So the first is a Pharisee, and I think it's all too easy um, for us to hear the word Pharisee and just naturally think evil bad guy. I mean, we've, we've all seen enough Hollywood films and uh, musicals about Jesus to know that the Pharisees are evil, right? You only need to look at these guys to realize they are the bad guys, quite clearly. But I think that our assumptions can make us miss what Jesus is saying in this story and how relevant his warnings about self-righteousness are to us. The Pharisees had a detailed understanding of what they were and what they were not allowed to do according to their holy scriptures. And if you were a Jew at this time who wanted to please God, these guys were heroes, You would want to be like them. You would aspire to be like the Pharisees. I think today they would have loads of Twitter followers eager for some great quotes on how to be a better you today. Uh, Their Instagram would be just full of pictures of them reading their Bible and looking thoughtful and wise, (laughs) undoubtedly with um, an edgy filter to boot. (laughs) To most onlookers, though, the Pharisees lived highly, uh, highly respectable, and morally outstanding lives. This could not be more different to the second character in our story, the tax collector. And tax collectors were hated. They really were the lowest of the low. They weren't just akin to HMRC tax officers in the UK that we might make jokes about. Uh, sorry if you, anyone here works for uh, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, Joel, up the back. Um, you do a great job for our society, thank you. No. These tax collectors had betrayed their nation, their religion, their friends, and their family to work for the Roman Empire who were occupying their country. And we could draw parallels, I think, with Nazi collaborators in occupied France or the Netherlands during World War II. Most tax collectors extorted their own people so they could make as much money for themselves as possible on top of the tax money that they had to then pass on to Rome. And they got away with it. It brings to mind the corrupt bankers who caused the credit crunch and financial collapse back in 2008. I remember the absolute fury that that people had over Fred Goodwin. Uh, I don't know if you remember him, the former head of RBS, getting paid millions in bonuses as ordinary people faced financial ruin and unemployment thanks to their greed. We hate seeing people get away with injustice like that. And so did the original listeners to Jesus' parable in the Gospel of Luke. So at the start of the passage in verse 9, Jesus addresses this parable to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. In other words, 
Jesus is primarily telling this story to anyone who believed that the key to pleasing God lies within themselves. And I want to ask you this evening, is that what you believe? Let's look at three things that Jesus says about self-righteousness through this story. Firstly, self-righteousness makes you focus on yourself instead of God. The Pharisee's prayer in verses 11 and 12 is entirely about himself. He prays two sentences and uses the word I five times. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. The end. Uh, There's nothing wrong with short prayers, but this so-called prayer is just a tribute to himself. And when your focus is on yourself, it leads to one of two things, and both of them are unhelpful. Like the Pharisee, it can lead to pride. You almost get the sense here, don't you, that he feels like God should be grateful to have someone of such moral character on his team. You know, with all his knowledge of the laws of God, he clearly hadn't read Proverbs 16.5, which says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Self-righteousness so quickly leads to pride in your own achievements and blindness to your own failings. The other extreme of being self-focused is to be so aware of your own shortcomings that you think you could never approach a perfect God, let alone have a relationship with him. We've already looked at what sort of man the tax collector was, and it's clear in verse 13 that he is he's acutely aware of the wrong he's done. It says he could not even look up to heaven but beat his breast, which was an expression of intense grief in his culture. Sometimes we hit that point of of intense guilt. But we shouldn't just stop there. It's not the tax collector's guilt that saves him. It's his cry for mercy in verse 13. Some of you here might feel like there's things that you've done wrong that put you beyond hope. But, you know, while this seems like a really different way of relating to God than the proud Pharisee, it's actually driven, I think, by the same thing, the pursuit of self-righteousness. Because it's all about what I have done and not the wonderful news of what God has done for me. Some of you here may have been a Christian for years, but you still struggle to approach your heavenly father confidently because you're weighed down by guilt for the things that have gone on in your life that you regret. Instead of trying to fix things yourself, turn to God. Our own self-improvement plans are a bit like trying to mend the old fourth road bridge with a needle and thread. But Jesus invites us to call out to him for help to run towards him, admitting that we can't do it by ourselves. So the first thing about self-righteousness is that it makes you focus on yourself instead of God. The second thing about self-righteousness is that it loves to compare itself to other people. Now, I'm a big sports fan, and much of sport is about comparing my team to your team or our team to their team, right? Um, As a Scotland rugby fan, uh, the Six Nations generally makes me question how fun this really is. Um, I'm always at my most enthusiastic and hopeful 
the evening before Scotland's first match of the championship. And by this point, I've built myself up into a frenzy of excitement that this could finally be our year. And then it usually goes downhill from there. But many of us here are, uh, will be in, intrigued by elections or award shows like the Oscars, where there are winners and losers. Things get ordered into hierarchies, right? The trouble starts when we allow our love for competition and comparison to seep into how we see other people. If you think you can earn your way into God's good books, it leads you to look down on other people who you don't think are trying hard enough. In verse 11, we read of the Pharisee standing by himself to pray, perhaps so as not to become contaminated by the sinfulness of those nearby. And he is quick to reel off all the ways in which the other worshippers don't measure up to him, all the while completely losing sight of how he has failed to measure up to God. And we must look at ourselves honestly in the light of who God is and not through the distortion that comes from comparing ourselves to other people. Romans 3 verse 10 says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And this really levels the playing field, doesn't it? There's no room for hierarchy. It's God here and the rest of us here. And when we truly understand ourselves as the object of God's mercy rather than the product of our own hard work or achievement, it breeds compassion in us for other people. People who are broken and needy but loved by God, just like you are. The Pharisees' self-righteousness caused him to look down on other people, but this can also drive us to compare ourselves to other people in the opposite direction. When people around you seem to have it so together, it's tempting to focus on all the ways in which you fall short of them, worrying about the gulf between your life and the life of someone you consider to be a better person. We are encouraged in the Bible to imitate mature followers of Christ, but we're never to live in competition with other people. If you've put your faith in Jesus, trust him that he will finish the good work that he has begun in you. So self-righteousness first takes the focus off of God. Second, it encourages comparison to other people. And third, Self-righteousness makes you value your external behavior more than the motives of your heart. God is far more concerned with the attitude of your heart towards him than he is with any outward religious observance. A Pharisee draws God's attention in verse 12 to fasting and tithing, to his own fasting and tithing. Fasting or or going without food uh, was something that the Jews in the Old Testament were only expected to do once a year. But this Pharisee fasts twice a week. In religious terms, he is going above and beyond, right? But Jesus is clear that that didn't make him right with God. Of course, Jesus tells us elsewhere that fasting and tithing or giving away a tenth of your income to God are good things. And we took up an offering earlier this evening, and many of you will have given away some of your money as part of your worship to God. And that is great. We do this out of overflowing gratitude for what God has done for us, not to earn merit points with him. Spiritual disciplines like tithing, fasting, praying or reading the Bible are things that we do because 
we love God and we know we need him at the center of our lives and we find everything we need in him. If you're praying or reading the Bible to earn points with God, you've missed the point that his gift of righteousness is free and is not given to the deserving but the humble. Self-righteousness is a major temptation for all of us today, just as it was for Jesus' original listeners. It was also a defining issue for the church 500 years ago, when the notion that we could earn God's love through good works was challenged by this man. I don't know if you can see that from the back. Um, if you can't see it, then there should be a slide going up on the screen to show you uh, what I'm holding here. Would anyone uh, like to guess who this Playmobil character is? Absolutely right. This is, uh, this is Martin Luther. And uh, Martin Luther, 500 years ago, almost to the day, set in motion a chain of events that led to the church across Europe rediscovering what Jesus says about self-righteousness. This Playmobil model was released to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. And slightly bizarrely, this is the fastest-selling Playmobil model ever, (laughs) which means there are loads more church history nerds like me in the world, which is great news. Martin Luther started out aspiring to be like the Pharisee in Luke 18 only to find that despite his endless striving, he was no better than a tax collector. At the time, the Catholic Church was a long way away from being grounded on the fundamental teachings of the Bible. They taught that you could only receive the grace of God by doing good things and performing religious rituals. Through these, you may someday... Uh, become a good enough person to be saved. Although, not before a long stint in purgatory, a mythical place where the soul would go after death to be slowly and painfully purged of all the remaining badness in you to make you ready for heaven. And there were all sorts of hoops in this teaching that you could jump through to make yourself progress along the path to God and even reduce the time that you were going to have to spend in purgatory, including paying sums of money to the church called indulgences and going through long sessions of confession with a priest. The aim of confession was to expose as much of the hidden sin inside you as possible. And then the priest could prescribe penance for you, made up of various activities that you could do to earn forgiveness. Luther became a monk in an effort to appease God, and he threw himself wholeheartedly into trying to follow all the rules and live a lifestyle that would make him acceptable to God. And to be honest, he did this better than most other monks around him. Luther used to spend hours on end, every day, desperately trying to remember all the things he'd done wrong so that he could confess them to his priest. He was... uh, struggling with anxiety because the more he focused and zoomed in on his own works, the more he saw the depth of his own shortcomings. And he slipped 
into an ever deeper, darker despair. You see, Luther was sorry for his sin, but what he really struggled with was how could he know that he was sorry enough to appease an angry God? He was desperate to go to heaven, um, but he had no love for God. In fact, Martin Luther came to hate God. He saw him as an exacting tyrant who was just setting people up to fail. And at this time, the Bible could only be read in Latin, which no normal people could read anymore. And it wasn't even common for priests to read the Bible. But when Luther was appointed the professor of biblical study at a small university in Wittenberg, Germany, in 1512, he began to spend more and more time studying the Bible and what Jesus actually said about how we are made right with God. And he was shocked at what he read. He came to understand that the Bible taught that his salvation was not dependent on his own efforts at all, but on Jesus, who lived the perfect life that Luther had not, and then died the death on the cross that Luther deserved, paying the full price for all his wrongdoing. Luther's standing before God, he found, wasn't a position to be earned, but received through faith. In fact, said Luther, the person that thinks they can obtain God's grace by doing what is in them adds sin to sin and so becomes doubly guilty. They try and do, what, uh, they try and do for themselves what only God can do for them. Luther read verses like Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, that says, For by grace you have been saved by faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. God has made a way for everyone to live in a relationship with him. And that changed everything for Luther. He described it like this. Immediately I felt myself reborn and I seemed to have entered the broad gates of paradise itself. From then on, all scripture seemed different to my eyes. Formerly, I had detested this term, the righteousness of God. But now, I loved and cherished so sweet a saying. Through the Bible, Luther discovered that God was not at all the cruel taskmaster he had previously thought. He met a God who was so compassionate that he would freely and completely rescue the helpless. Luther said, God doesn't love us because of our worth. We are of worth because he loves us. And I think that's what God wants to say to each of you here this evening. He wants to say, I don't love you because of your worth. You are of worth because I love you. This transformed Martin Luther from a terrified, despairing monk into a bold religious reformer that risked his life to take on the most powerful men of his age, popes, emperors, kings. Because of what God did through Martin Luther, millions of people have been led into the freedom 
of understanding and receiving the grace of God again. It's a great story, and I wish we had more time to talk about the Reformation this evening. But if you would like to read any more about the Reformation, then I'd love to just recommend a book to you. This one in particular is called Unquenchable Flame by Mike Reeves. It's really short and it's super easy to read, so I'd recommend that one to you. Luther realized that how God saw him didn't fluctuate depending on his own performance. When he made a mistake, it didn't cut him off from God, and he didn't have to earn his way back into God's good books. He could instead worship Jesus, thanking him that his sacrifice was more than enough to pay for every sin. Do you live your Christian life like that old game with the flower? You know the one, it goes like this. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. I get up early for that prayer meeting, he loves me. I do that thing that I know I shouldn't, he loves me not. Don't fall for that lie that putting your faith in Jesus is only the start of what it takes to make yourself fully acceptable to God, as though his sacrifice for you can be undone. It can be tempting to approach the Christian life this way because it allows us to feel at least partly in control of our own salvation. You know, it might acknowledge God, but it actually denies our desperate need for him. Only Jesus can save you. In 1518, Martin Luther wrote the Heidelberg Disputation, and in it he said, the law says, do this. And it is never done. Grace says, believe in this. And everything is already done. Maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus. And tonight, you've realized that your own efforts to be a good person just aren't enough. Just like Martin Luther and just like the tax collector in the parable, You need to stop trusting in yourself and instead completely trust in Jesus. He is faithful to forgive. 1 Peter 3 verse 18 reminds us that the righteous one, Jesus, died in the place of the unrighteous. That's us. So that he might bring us to God. It's all about what he has done. Or perhaps you've been a Christian for a while, even decades, but tonight God's just been knocking at the door, helping you to realize that you've slipped back into trying to earn his favor. Remember, you didn't earn it through your own behavior, behavior, and you cannot lose it through your own behavior. Whether it's 2,000 years ago, as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. 500 years ago, as in the days of Martin Luther, or right now in this room this evening, what Jesus says about self-righteousness doesn't change. Nothing you can do will ever make you acceptable to God except receiving his free gift of righteousness. And he offers that to each of us with outstretched arms. In a second... We're going to stand and sing together 
about this gift. So if the band could come up and join me on stage. As we come before God in worship in a moment, we're going to sing these words. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Abandon your self-improvement program. Receive Jesus' free gift of righteousness. And praise God that you can know and enjoy him forever because of it. Let's stand and sing.